Number 302, Trail asks that we mark that, and we'll use that at the close of the lesson, of course, as the invitation hymn. As we think about singing, as we think about the opportunity, as we even mentioned in prayer, the glorious note of lifting our voices throughout all eternity, perhaps we can keep in mind next Sunday afternoon, our third Sunday Putnam County Singing will be hosted here at Pippin. Let's all keep that on our calendar. It's at 2 o'clock next Sunday, August the 21st. So as we look forward to gathering on that mid-afternoon occasion, it has been the choice of the elders that there will be no 5.30 service that afternoon. It's just that that will serve as our evening service that day. And so next Sunday, again, August the 21st, will be our third uh, Putnam County third Sunday singing here at the Pippin Church of Christ. As we think about the matters of our assemblage this morning, the particular series of lessons in which we have been studying, namely the family. The family is always such a pertinent topic for each of us as we think about the obligations and the duties, the relationships that are enjoyed, and the great blessing that God has bestowed upon the human family with the characteristics of a godly family. Speaking of that, we have looked at the Father, and we at least set forth some ideas about a godly father. Then we looked at a godly mother, and also noted some things in the Holy Scriptures about the activities, the operations, the point of view of that woman that would be a godly mother. Last Sunday, we turned our attention to godly children and came to see, too, that God has much to say about their behavior, their point of view. It is true, though, that there are other things to be noted about the family. And today, the title of the lesson, as you may have noted in the bulletin, is A Godly Set of Family Members. As we give thought, then, to today's lesson, might I ask each of us to notice that there are other members in a family besides a father, a mother, and children. There, in fact, are others that occupy various roles, as we'll notice in just a moment. Can we ask, do those also have things to keep in mind as they too contribute to the overall well-being of the character of the family? I believe as we give some thought that God too has much to say even about this arrangement. And so it is, with that in mind, let's begin our lesson today the way that we have begun the past three with some initial comments about the placement of and the occurrence of these other family members. We do remember that when God created Adam and Eve on that sixth day of His creative activity, that He did give the order and the specific command in Genesis 1.28 that they were in fact to be fruitful, to multiply, and to replenish the earth. To fill the earth, if you please. And of course, with the lifespans in that ancient day as they were, we well understand that there came to be other than members, if you please, of a family. There were grandparents and great-grandparents and aunts and uncles, cousins. In light of all of that, even Adam and Eve. We do remember so well about Cain and Abel. But after Cain slew Abel, Seth was born. And Genesis 5 verse 4 reminds us there were other sons and daughters also that were born. It thus came to be that there were other family members like those that you and I just mentioned. And might we in fact invite some questions concerning each and all of them. I've listed them in the following way. As you think about grandparents, for example, do they have anything to which God turns their attention as they, for instance give thought to what God expects of them? The answer is yes. What about those that are aunts or uncles? Do all of us stand beneath the banner 
of the character of what God demands and expects of us as we have relation not only to the spiritual family of the church, but of course our obligations to the physical family. Certainly today as we look at some passages, we will be reminded of how special it can be to think about perhaps the influence that these that we've just listed can in fact have upon other members of a family. How often Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in fact mentioned as a triumph trio, father, son, and grandson, in which they were the hallmark of faith in an ancient era, and they stood still as that powerful example from Matthew 8, 11, even of the character of faithfulness to God. As you give some thought to some of the later comments, might we suffice it to say that there is sometimes a sad failure in our modern society, isn't there? We noted father failures of fathers and mothers and sometimes children, but sometimes grandparents and aunts and uncles and others too can fail to appreciate that that which is expected of them from the Word of God is that which sometimes falls short. May we try to remedy that and may we strive even as those who aren't simply fathers or mothers any longer, but maybe occupy these other roles that we too can truly impact all eternity by the character of what we hold true to and the example that we in fact set. It'll be our chore today to look at some passages in the Scriptures that challenge us toward that end. As we do so, I might invite each of us to give thought to first of all this item. Perhaps it goes without saying, but all that we've dis discussed, be it with fathers, be it with children, be it with mothers, has all revolved around the element of the truth. It remains so as we give the earnest attention of being grounded in the truth. The lesson text that you might have noted a moment ago from verse 5 of 2 Timothy 1 turned our attention to a particular scenario in the life of Timothy I would ask you to note not only that reading, but let's place some emphasis upon a few of its words. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee. Now Paul was writing to Timothy, and he highly complimented Timothy here by the recognition of an unfeigned faith that was in him. Unfaith, unfeigned, you note, means genuine it means real. It means not hypocritical. Timothy wasn't play-acting. We recall from Acts 16 that it was his choice to in fact accompany the inspired apostle on that missionary journey, the remainder of it at least. Timothy had a genuineness about him and the character of his faith. Let's finish the verse. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in thee also. Isn't it remarkable as you give thought to what that verse stated? First of all, he said, This unfeigned faith first dwelt in thy grandmother, Lois. There's no mention made of Timothy's great-grandmother. It would appear that Lois was a rather remarkable woman in the sense that she made the pure attitude and volition to be a servant of the God of heaven. And oh, what influence she had apparently influencing her daughter Eunice, and furthermore having a rather dramatic influence even upon Timothy. You might notice neither Timothy's father nor his grandfather is mentioned. Earlier in Acts 16, Timothy's father is mentioned, but on this occasion such was not to be. 
Furthermore, we notice nothing is said about Lois's husband. We do not know whether the man was one of faith or if he was not. But this much we do know that Lois first had an unfeigned faith in her, for Paul said so. And that faith, she took the liberty by instruction, by example, by bequeathing it to her daughter Eunice. And that came to be a remarkable influence also upon Timothy. Did this woman, who herself a grandmother, impact many for the cause of truth? Certainly she did. Timothy became a gospel preacher and one who no doubt touched the lives of many for all eternity as he shed forth before them the beautiful realities of the truth of the gospel. You'll notice among the things on that slide, calling us to appreciate again some of the features of 2 Timothy 1.5. Paul did describe that faith as an unfeigned one. That was a time and in a world when it wasn't easy, of course, to live a true life in faith. But again, it isn't obviously easy today either. But Lois did it, and Eunice did it, and Timothy was set forth on a course in which he too had the liberty of the example of a faithful mother and that of a grandmother as well. Might we pause a moment and ask, as a grandmother or a grandfather, what are your examples? Those youngsters that are two generations removed from you, do they see in you a steadfast example of triumphing over the difficulties and hardships of this life and emerging based solely and triumphantly upon the faith of Jesus Christ. If they see that in you, though they too in time may come to have problems in life, they shall never forget. They shall never forget the character of what you exemplified and the groundwork on which you based your life. It is something to consider, isn't it? Certainly it was that way with regard to Lois, that unfeigned faith. It is true too, isn't it, that so often our world has other things to which it seeks to turn our attention, and especially perhaps that's true of those younger. There's so many things that are gadget-oriented, entertainment-oriented, the arrangements whereby one can so quickly and instantly perceive that which satisfies one's wants, when again, in that life of one dedicated, perhaps like Lois was, to those things that aren't based on the passing fancy of the immediate moment, but nonetheless are grounded on what will endure the passage of time and will lead life to be satisfied and content, that kind of thing will capture the attention of those who watch and those who observe. Faith is a vitally important thing, isn't it? A youngster needs to see the examples of those older. Who are those that set forth that example? Think about passages like these. Where would we be without faith? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Thus... You and I appreciate that it's the, through the mechanism of faith that we're saved. We also remember in Hebrews 11, verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Our youngsters thus not only need to see that embodied in parents, they need to see it embodied in grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins 
and others on whom they observe and watch. Might we each then appreciate the example of Lois as a rather noble one, but she isn't the only one in Scripture who fulfills an example for us in this way. Consider also this with me. In Colossians 4, verses 9 and 10, we have mention made of a gentleman, John Mark. John Mark was, again, a rather interesting person. He makes a good study in his own right. It was he who had a bit of a contention with Paul on one occasion in regard to his disposition on the first missionary journey. But be that as it may, we do remember that a gentleman named Barnabas was of relation to him, particularly a first cousin. As we notice from that passage, it would seem that this man Barnabas had a lovely and positive influence on Mark. Barnabas was known as an encourager, was it? He was called the son of consolation in Acts chapter 4. That means son of encouragement. Could it be that Barnabas had a powerful influencing role even to assist John Mark in his further maturity and in his further appreciation of where he needed to be in the faith? It could well be. Perhaps one final example. What about the book of Esther? We each remember the loveliness of Esther. The fact that she had a cardinal role in the saving of the Jews on this occasion. But what brought her to that point? She had a first cousin named Mordecai. One who was far older than she. And her parents, she did not in fact have them. But Mordecai raised her. It was he who assisted her, guided her, directed her. And what kind of person did Esther turn out to be? Esther was a rather noble example of a pious woman. When Vashti, of course, was not found fit for the queenship, it was she who was selected by the providence of God. And oh, how powerfully she occupied that role of the queen. In Esther 4.14, what did Mordecai say to her? Who knoweth but what thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this? God works through you, Esther, and you have been placed in this position that you can be the saving person who can help to, in fact, save your people. What a great example Mordecai was. He wouldn't bow to Haman, though everyone else did. Here was one devoted to what God had said. What about you and me? Are we grounded in truth? Do your first cousins and mine see us the way they should? Or do they see in us a cause to doubt? a cause to question, and a cause to be unfaithful. May it never be so. But not only must we be, and should we be grounded in truth, what about those that can be teachers? Not just any arbitrary teacher, but those who would in fact, by way of example, and when opportunity affords to be those who instruct in that which is good and wise. I would invite you to think about that with me for a few moments as we again look at some passages that challenge us along that way as well. First of all, isn't it true that one of the most referenced and one of the most often set forth notions as it comes to those older is the opportunity that they have to instruct those that are younger. Isn't it interesting that God fashioned it that way? We enter into this world as a babe and really we have no skills or capacities to in fact put forth an action at that point. We're unable to do so. We can't even feed ourselves. But yet as we grow, as we mature, God has in fact put into us talents and we can develop them and use them. But isn't it interesting in light of all of that, 
that those that are older are in fact given on more than one occasion the express challenge to bequeath to those younger the wisdom of years. Don't let that wisdom go to waste. The older ones, those who have the experience of years, you've been through those times that are good and those times that are more challenging. You've been through those times that are difficult, but you've also rejoiced on those times through which you emerged. Use that wisdom to help those who are about to suffer the same things as they age. All the while, might we never forget this. Your wisdom can in fact be a great matter of assistance. Isn't it interesting sometimes that we can hear a grandfather say, Son, I've tried that once and it doesn't work out the way you think. Son, I hope you'll think twice about approaching it that way because have you ever considered this might be what will happen? Sometimes granddad, you see, has been there. He's done that. And he knows what happened to him or someone else and he is well aware that it may well happen again. You see, sometimes the wisdom of years might well be noticed as follows. In Proverbs 16, 31, there is a high statement made about that hoary head. Those gray hairs, you see, should bring with it years of wisdom. And they should bring with it an opportunity to appreciate that indeed there are times to speak, but there are times to be silent, Ecclesiastes 3 tells us. Sometimes in our youth we're far too quick to speak. We bring ourselves into times of trouble because we speak when perhaps we should wait a moment, gain a degree of calmness, and then be prepared to speak with elements that both are calm and wise. Perhaps it's fair to say that that gray head, which is referenced in Proverbs 20, verse 29, and stated in one of the most highly complimentary fashions, should be something on which we give some attention at least every now and then. Young people, don't be so quick to set aside those old or old-fashioned and know-nothings. They do have years of experience, and what they say may not be the thing you want to hear. But give it serious consideration. Think about what's being uttered because again, though you don't realize it now, when you too have years of experience, you likely will discover there was some rather remarkable truths in what they said. In fairness to all of that, Paul does have some direct things to say on more than one occasion, one of them being Titus chapter 2. There he directly says to the older women as well as to the older men, Let's look at them one at a time. First, to the older women. In Titus 2, beginning in verse 3, continuing for one more verse, Paul expressly says to those aged or older women that you should instruct or train the younger women. Now you'll notice something interesting in that. That word train, again, has behind it the notion of instruction. And this was to be done in, of course, a way which was in complete compliance with the other things of Scripture but to teach them to love their husbands, to love their children, to be keepers at home, to be one appreciated for gravity and sincerity and nobility. You set an example before those younger women like that. We live in a time, and it was true in ancient, the ancient empires as well, but we live in a time when so often a young person again pursues the carnal matters of life to the complete exclusion of that which is spiritual. They need an influence of those older women. They should see in you 
that which will help them appreciate that that ultimately is what God would wish them to do. Don't forget those responsibilities. Now the aged men, the older men aren't left out either. Verse 2 of that same chapter says, Those older men, you need to be an example of self-control, sincerity and gravity, meaning that you need to have a life whereby sound judgment is exemplified, that you can be a person recognized as one who isn't off the cuff to engage in those matters that are unchristianly, but rather an individual of sound disposition, of noble character, a kind of one who can be an influence to those younger men. Again, they do not have the years of experience yet, but they need to see in you what they should learn about how to behave themselves. We each, you see, can serve as those means whereby we can influence some other people. In fact, those children, those younger ones, those young, young married couples... As they see the lives of olders, others who've been married for years, they see a set of individuals who have advanced through tumultuous times, but yet who have emerged happily and satisfied in terms of the family they have, the home that they've built. I would submit we each can give some thought that these matters truly are very important in nature. For we live in a world that often considers it rather unimportant. So many times our children are told, you make a career, and that's really all they're ever told. Learn a trade, make money. Advance in your career and be promoted. It is, you see, sometimes only in parents and in grandparents and others where they're told, what about finding that mate that'll love you, who you can help to go to heaven, who will you will help go to heaven? That person will be your companion and help meet for life. That person who you can uh, come to, in fact, influence grandchildren with. It is to be noted, again, our world sometimes takes a dim view to this and how tragic and how sad. It is in the Word of God we find examples. This matter of teaching might be set forth like this. In 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon's son Rehoboam he had at least the nerve to ask some counsel and advice. We may well remember there, there were some counselors, the cabinet, if you please, in Solomon's administration. These older men, Rehoboam asked them their advice, and they rather quickly gave it to him. But Rehoboam didn't like their advice, and he chose not to follow it. Might I ask what happened? We each remember what happened. The kingdom split. That was when there were 12 united tribes in Israel. Rehoboam asked the council, those older men, and they gave him some wise counsel. But he refused it. After that, not too many chapters later, in fact, one chapter later, the kingdom split. The ten tribes seceded from the others, and now there was two kingdoms. That which had been united, that which had been strong, that which had been dedicated to God together was torn asunder by the foolishness of Rehoboam, at least in part. Isn't that a tragedy? If only he'd listened to the counsel of those wiser, seasoned, experienced, older men. What did Rehoboam do instead? He also asked some counsel of his friends, the young men. He followed their advice. It was awful advice. It was terrible advice. 
You see, sometimes we need to remember that that seasoned advice and instructive power of years can be so meaningful it can truly make a dramatic difference in what life can be. It perhaps is to be noted in Job 32 verse 7. It was the case even there that Elihu, a younger man, said years should speak. He even made the admonition. He made the observation, wisdom ought to come with the speaking of years. I'd submit that as we think about both of those things, be we uncles or aunts or grandparents or even great-grandparents, there still is something that we can contribute to what others who are younger than we see in terms of how Christians should behave, how life can be, how marriage ought to in fact be, and even how other things in life can turn out. The closing section of our lesson this morning will be this one. Thirdly and finally, though we've hinted at it earlier, it would seem based on the Scriptures that there certainly are some final comments that we ought to make especially about the influence and the teaching of those who are of more advanced age than us. Quite often it's a sad thing, but our world plays down old age. In fact, there are other countries in which older age is almost looked upon as such a tragedy and such a sadness that one almost wishes to get rid of those individuals as quickly as possible. Nothing could be further from the revelation of truth than that. Older individuals are those who, as we've noted already, those who can still set forth the powerful reality of Christian example. In Psalm chapter 19 as well as Psalm 14, we remember that there, again, as instruction of old age is set forth, it's highlighted in passages like Psalm 92 verse 14. All of that brings me to these final set of comments in our lesson this morning. Though it's an obvious thing, it perhaps is worthy to state. Advancing years does bring us closer to death. Again, under the normal arrangement of statistics, we appreciate that those older years are closer to the time of closing matters in the flesh than those that are younger. That seems to be a very powerful thought in this way. You see, death is such an unpleasant thing to so many. And the reason is because they haven't built their life upon this. And so death is so terribly fearful and so terribly unknown that they dread it with the greatest of dread. But yet it really ought not be that way at all. Because think about those noble characters of Scripture and the way in which they approached death and the way in which they commented concerning it. Abraham in Genesis 25 verses 8 and 9, the text simply says this, He was gathered to his people. It doesn't sorrowfully note with great agony and disdain the nature of the ending of his life. It simply makes the comment he was old and full of years and he was gathered to his people. A very similar statement was made of Isaac. A very similar statement in Genesis 49 was made of Jacob. With regard to Jacob, we notice on his closing moments he blessed his sons and then he gathered his feet up into the bed and left the scenes of this life. We notice then as he passed on into the realms beyond this one, doesn't it make us think of Paul in the New Testament? Now Paul, as he penned the second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, wasn't it Paul who said that the time of my departure is at hand. I'm now ready to be offered. 
He said that and followed it with these words. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. We do not, in fact, at all find one struggling with this character in death. He knew his race was nearly run. He knew the matters that he had done formerly in life, and he'd been forgiven of that. He also knew the final matters of this later race he had run from that day on the road to Damascus onward. This man had committed his life to Jesus the Christ. He now closed it by saying, There's a crown of life awaiting me. Oh, how we need those older who can approach death like that, understanding that this life has been but a temporary sojourn and that the greatest things are yet to come, that that which lies beyond, the greatest of that glorious morning of resurrection, the magnitude and enormity of heaven, that's what we need to be working toward. All the things in this life are but temporary matters to get us through it, but that's the ultimate goal. We each then need to set examples in which that's the message. The message being, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things should be added to you. You'll notice some of the final comments in terms of that slide really are exemplified very quickly in these basic things that we'll use to finish the lesson this morning. As we've noted it earlier, these things in life, our young people need to see in us the reality that though these are necessary accompaniments for a while, they are not the singular most important matter. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth, Luke twelve fifteen. Wasn't it true that we're also admonished in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 15? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For he that loveth the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Isn't it true that we need individuals, members of families, not just parents again, but others who exemplify traits and characteristics like these? It is with that in mind, I would draw your attention to arguably the most special love story in all the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. Though we'll be brief about it, we each remember, I suppose, how the book unfolds. We open the book with a woman named Naomi and her husband Elimelech. But there was a famine in the nation of Judah, the character of the Judean region. And so they and their two sons, Malan and Kylian, go off to Moab to try and find sustenance so that they could withstand the famine. Things took a turn for the worse there. After the boys married, three of them died. Both Elimelech, Malin, and Kylie, and all of them died. All that was left was three women, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. I say all that to say this. How did things unfold from there on? Naomi made a decision to go back home. One of the daughters went with her, but one of them didn't. Orpah chose to stay behind at the insistence of Naomi, quite frankly. But Ruth chose to cleave unto her and would not remain, and she accompanied her mother-in-law back. And the next two chapters unfold the love story of Boaz and Ruth. But chapter 4 is the one I would ask you to consider with me as we close this lesson. 
the central characters on the stage through those two middle chapters had been Boaz and Ruth. When we come to chapter 4, we find that finally they marry, that love story comes to its completion, a son is born to them, and that boy's name was Obed. But now the parents leave the stage, not even mentioned anymore in the book. The person on the stage was Naomi. And yet she, in principle, was the grandmother of that baby. Now think of it this way. What is said about it? First of all, they pronounced a blessing on Naomi, the women of the town did, because now there was a restorer to her youth. There was the one whom she could appreciate to be the fullness of coming complete. She'd lost her husband. She'd lost her sons. But now Obed, that cherished and precious grandchild who she would nurse. Might we ask, what happened to that baby? Here's what happened to that baby. He became the father of Jesse, who became the father of David. Arguably the greatest king of the Old Testament was the grandson of that boy that Naomi took care of. We should never think a grandmother or a grandfather can't be influential. We should never think there isn't work to be done. For there is work to be done grounded in truth, appreciative of that which is right. And all of us then need to live those lives of the highest noble character so that the younger generation will see in us what they ought to be. As we close this lesson this morning, may we ask the rather personal question of examination. What about your life and mine? Am I setting an example of a grandparent or as an uncle or as an aunt? Do others see in me that which can help them and assist them in living a life of righteousness? If that answer is not yes, you need to make some changes. You need to change the direction or perspective of what you're currently doing. If we could be of assistance in that way today, keep in mind our interest is only the truth. Living it, employing it, instructing it, teaching it, assisting others to come to understand it as well. Quite often those younger are the most impressionable, and quite frankly, some who are older can be as well. But today, if your example is such that you need to fix it, make some amends in it, why not let today be the day of doing that? It might also be there's one or more here who's never become a Christian. Dear friend, you can't live the Christian life until you start. You need to begin that road today. If you know that Jesus died for you, and if you know that you're in sin, and if you know what the plan of salvation is, you know enough. Why not come forward today? We're going to sing this hymn of invitation. And if we could be of assistance in praying for rededication to those who have gone astray, or in assisting the baptism, confession and baptism of those of whom are in need of that, why not let that be known today, if you would, without delay, while together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>